Will you please turn with me in your Bibles this morning, once again, to the 12th chapter of the letter written to the Hebrews, where we will be focusing our attention on verses 18 through 24. So that's Hebrews chapter 12, again, verses 18 through 24. And we are now at least somewhat, I would say, in the home stretch, if you will. The home stretch of what has been a very lengthy look at this letter written to the Hebrews. And brothers and sisters in Christ, I hope that it has been as encouraging and as edifying for all of you as it has been for me to be immersed in this wonderful epistle of sacred scripture for the amount of time that we've been sort of involved in it. I think the benefits of spending so much time in this epistle truly are innumerable. We've tried to clear away some of the many misconceptions that seem to unfortunately follow this wonderful letter of sacred scripture in the church today. The writer from the very outset of this letter seeks to show beyond any shadow of a doubt that the excellencies of the Lord Jesus Christ far surpass everything that has went before him or that has been revealed by the grace of God before him. Truly, it is him and him alone that the scriptures are driving us towards from the very beginning in the garden following the fall of man, back in the book of Genesis, all the way through the glorious triumph of the Lamb that we read of in the book of Revelation. Chapter after chapter in this letter, we see the writer masterfully chipping away at the many layers of confusion and the haziness that surround the person and work of Jesus Christ. And as he does so, we have witnessed that it is the all-surpassing, the brilliant glory of Jesus that shines through in order to clear up the haze that so often sets in over the Holy Scriptures and our understanding of it. I mean, think about what this, this, singular, this singular epistle does. It takes us on a journey throughout the wonderful history of God's revelation in the Bible, pulling back layer after layer after layer of the glory of Jesus Christ as it does so. That alone makes it stand out for its usefulness in the church. I would say that it serves as a sort of key to the map of biblical understanding, explaining all of the rich history recorded for us in Scripture through the comprehensive lens of the Lord Jesus Christ. The writer has faithfully led us and has been our tour guide through that history leading us through this process of reading, of, of recalling specific events in redemptive history and then relating it to what we see in the person and the work of Jesus Christ, even going so far as to faithfully apply its meaning to our very lives. Think about the extent to which he does this for just a moment. Think of where we've been in this letter. We've been led back in this letter to the Garden of Eden where we first hear that upon the fall of our father Adam 
We hear the promise of a seed, one who would come. And though the serpent would bruise his heel, he would ultimately crush the head of that serpent. We know, of course, that is exactly what Jesus Christ did, going to the cross, paying the penalty, do our sin in full. And then, of course, rising from the dead and ascending to the right hand of the Father where we are told He acts as our advocate. He did it once and for all of those who truly belong to Him. He has defeated the power of sin, death, and the devil. We've also journeyed back to Ur the land of our father Abraham, and we heard the wonderful promise of the covenant where God had said that he would be our God and he would make us into his beloved people. He alone swore to uphold this promise, swearing by his own majestic name to remain faithful to uphold his covenant to the very end. We've come to understand much more about the mysterious high priest, Melchizedek. We have witnessed how he typified the high priest that was to come in the Lord Jesus Christ. We've looked back to the ark of salvation for Noah and his family as they were delivered from the wrath that was due every man, woman, and child upon the earth. We are told they were saved by the grace of God. We've wondered at the events of the Passover and the Exodus, the deliverance of God's people from the bondage of Egypt. We've come to understand the true beauty of the the tabernacle and its many implements. We have witnessed how they pointed to the true tabernacle in glory. We have seen how they served as but shadows of their ultimate substance, their ultimate reality. In the Lord Jesus Christ. And this is, of course, only scratching the surface of the depths of biblical history that have been searched out and brought into the glorious light of Jesus Christ in this epistle. Time will simply not allow for us to recall all of them this morning, but truly, no necessary stone has been left unturned here. No foggy haze is allowed to remain over these events as time and time again, the writer of this wonderful Christ-exalting letter has dragged all of biblical history into the penetrating, brilliant light of the Lord Jesus Christ. One thing has been made clear to us over the past year or so, and that is that all of Scripture is pointing, driving us towards Jesus Christ and the amazing grace of Almighty God that has been made so evident to the people of God in and through Him. And the original audience of this letter, like so much of what is calling itself the church today, desperately needed to hear it. They were on the brink of fleeing that revelation and running back headlong into the shadows to try and find some sort of relief, some form of relief amid their afflictions. And to show them the folly of such a thought, the writer has used a series of contrasts between all these shadows on the one hand 
and their reality in Jesus Christ on the, on the other hand in order to bring them to, along in their understanding. We've witnessed them throughout the entirety of this letter. Think about just some of them. The revelation of angels inferior to the revelation of Jesus Christ. Moses, the mediator, inferior to Jesus Christ, the ultimate and final mediator. Aaron, the high priest, inferior to the Lord Jesus Christ, the archetypal high priest. The earthly tabernacle, inferior to its ultimate reality in the heavenly tabernacle. The blood of bulls and goats, inferior to the blood of of the Lord Jesus Christ. The law, in its inability to produce righteousness, inferior to the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. Right? This list could go on and on and on. And now this morning we look together at one final contrast. And it's a contrast between, of all things, two very different mountains. The Mount of Sinai and the Mount in sacred scripture that is called Zion. And beloved, I would tell you that it is perhaps the most penetrating, the most clarifying contrast of all. And of course, a great one for the writer of this gospel-centered, Christ-exalting letter to end on. So let's look to the word of God together this morning. It's my hope that you'll find yourself tremendously comforted and encouraged as we do so. Again, I'll be reading Hebrews chapter 12, verses 18 through 24. Hear now the word of our Lord. For you have not come to the mountain that may be touched and that burned with fire and to blackness and darkness and tempest, and the sound of a trumpet, and the voice of words, so that those who heard it begged that the word should, be, should not be spoken to them anymore, for they could not endure what was commanded. And if so much as a beast touches the mountain, it shall be stoned or shot with an arrow. And so terrifying was the sight that Moses said, I am exceedingly afraid and trembling. But you have come to Mount Zion, and to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem, to an innumerable company of angels, to the general assembly and church of the firstborn who are registered in heaven, to God, the judge of all, to the spirits of just men made perfect, to Jesus, the mediator of the new covenant, and to the blood of sprinkling that speaks better things, than that of Abel. says the word of our Lord. May he always bless the reading of it. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we're grateful this morning to go to your word, and we pray as we do so that you would clear our hearts and our minds of all of those things that distract us, that we would give our full undivided attention to your word this morning, that we might be transformed by it for your glory. Edify us as your people, Father, and we ask it in the name truly above every other name. We pray this in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. 
the writer has been laboring here to bring these struggling Hebrew converts to Christianity to a proper perspective of their trials and their tribulations and the purpose behind them. And having spent much time dismantling the foolish notion that there is any comfort at all to be found outside of the grace of God in Jesus Christ, he then moved into addressing how they could and indeed how they should seek comfort amid the rising heat of this life. He explains to them the nature of the race that they are, by the grace of Almighty God, already running. Their God is not indifferent to their course, having Himself laid out their courses for them, as well as defended them from His enemies along the way. He is not worried about their crossing the finish line, having guaranteed their endurance and their perseverance in the work of His Son. He's not trying to crush them through the pouring out of his wrath for their sin upon their heads as they run, testing, as it were, to see the extent of of their own seriousness for God. Rather, he is continually shaping them, molding them, twisting, turning, poking, prodding them more and more into the image of his beloved Son as they make their way steadfastly toward glory. It is his love that brings about their difficulties, not his wrath. Therefore, the writer said, in light of this, pick up your dragging hands and strengthen the weak knees and run with purpose towards Jesus Christ. Make your way through this life as one who is eagerly approaching home in glory where your Savior and His angels and His people who have already finished their own respective races await. You say, well, what does that do? What should we do in light of that? Well, He tells you, pursue peace and holiness and do not miss the magnificence of the grace of Almighty God in all of it. Do not live as if this present life holds anything at all for you save the glory of God as he works out his perfect will in and through, in you and through you through the work of his Holy Spirit, driving you towards a much deeper appreciation for your Savior. Now the writer once again ends this exhortation that we've been looking at for several weeks now by pointing out once again the sheer folly of ever even considering for a moment going back into the shadows of Judaism in search of peace. And it is indeed a powerful illustration. He places before their mind's eye two very different mountains, Sinai and Zion. And they represent two different realities of God's nature. Sinai makes it crystal clear that Almighty God is holy. He's holy. He stands far, far above us even when we are at our personal best. That He is indeed referred to rightly in Scripture as a consuming fire. 
And in these two examples before us, we find some similarities as well as some glaring differences. Both mountains bring forth a definitive reaction from all of those who are called to approach them. Both mountains reveal to us certain aspects of the nature of Almighty God. Both mountains have sitting or standing at their apex the God who is. And both mountains stand as a place for the delivered people of God to go and to do something very specific. Both mountains are places for the worship of Almighty God by those who have been set free. Do you see that? You think about the Israelites. They were delivered from cruel bondage in Egypt in order to worship the Lord their God. From the very first time that Moses approached the Pharaoh, he made it known that the people were to be let go. Why? In order to worship the Lord their God. They were to do it in the wilderness where they would be led to Mount Sinai. And of course, Mount Zion is no different in this regard, though the occasion as well as the motivation for worship on Zion is much different than that of Sinai. And so we see that there are some clear differences between these two mountains as well. Sinai is described very vividly here using vernacular that creates a definitive picture for the hearer. Look at some of the wording, right? It can be touched. It is tangible. That is, it was physically manifested, witnessed by those who approached it. As opposed to Zion, which we see only upon leaving this world at death. It burned with fire. It was enshrouded with darkness and blackness and tempest and storms. The sounds surrounding Sinai are equally vivid here. There is the shrill blasting of the trumpet and the deafening voice of Almighty God thundered down the mountain upon them as as it descended from its heights. It's loud and chaotic. There was thunder and lightning and fire. Sinai reveals before the people Almighty God as the holy judge of all the earth. And its effect is universal. It produces a definite effect in the fallen ones who dare to approach it for worship. What does it produce? Bone-chilling terror. Even Moses himself was terrified. It crushes, it strikes the very heart of man. It establishes for man the wide separation between sinners and a perfectly holy God. It makes the heart of even the stoutest individual melt within his chest. We are told that the people who approached begged Moses to plead with God to make it all stop. They were terrified. They could not even really approach it too nearly because to do so would be to meet with certain death. God himself promised them as much. You think about the fire of Sinai for a moment. This is not just any fire. 
This is the very fire that Adam and Eve saw over their shoulders as they, as they left the Garden of Eden forever. The flaming sword that barred their access to unbridled communion with their God. It is a fearful spectacle for all who approach it. From Sinai descended the law of Almighty God, and along with it came its perfect, righteous judgments. Every single element of Sinai evokes fear and trembling in the hearts of sinful men who are not holy. It really ought to make us think about what truly fueled the rage of Moses as he descended the mountain with the law of God and heard the people celebrating before their dumb, unintimidating idol. Dancing frivolously before it, heaping condemnation upon their heads, even before they received the bad news that Moses was about to deliver. It was not the right reaction to what took place on Sinai. Celebration? That reaction was reserved for another mountain beautiful Mount Zion. And so we think that sounds like a horrifying place. Why is the writer here dredging all of this up? I thought he was trying to encourage the weary here. Right? I mean, this is right on the heels of the whole pick up your dragging hands and strengthen your weak knees argument. Sinai doesn't sound encouraging. It sounds awful. But that's just the point, beloved. Listen to me. If Sinai is the end, then all we have is fear and trembling and perfectly just condemnation and judgment. Ultimately, even our destruction because of sin. That's the truth. However, praise be to God that it's not the end. Sinai stood where? In proximity to where they were going. It didn't stand in the land of promise. It stood looming halfway in the wilderness. It stood as a necessary stop along the way to glory. It was only part way. Zion, however, was at the end of our pilgrimage. In the promised land, there was another mountain for the liberated people of God to shake off their shackles and worship, as it were, unfettered, unencumbered by their former captivity. At Sinai, the people of God learned of their great need for another deliverance other than their deliverance from Egypt. They learned that they needed to be freed from the bondage of their sin. So they gathered to receive His holy law. And to learn the depths of their own desperate depravity. They learned of the separation that stood between them and their God. Their way, their access had been barred. You will remember undoubtedly the Holy of Holies in the tabernacle. Where the presence of God was with the Ark of the Covenant. And the mercy seat located within the Holy of Holies. In the veil barred the direct access. For the penitent. And at Sinai, access 
was barred. As God thundered, they were not even to approach. If even an animal were to do so, it would be immediately put to death. Do you see? The writer here is letting his beloved flock know that they were not going back to that mountain. To return to Judaism would be to flee the terrors of Sinai completely devoid of any of the hope of Zion. Do you understand? It would be nonsensical. At Sinai, the people were stripped bare, having their sin and their shame fully exposed. And they were left to wait in hope for the one who would come and clothe them, deliver them, To Mount Zion. They were left in hopeful anticipation of a promised Redeemer. And Jesus Christ, having been revealed before their eyes, is leading his beloved people not back to the foot of Sinai, but to the glory of the foot of Zion. He, having fully satisfied for all of the sin exposed at Sinai, has clothed his people in the precious garment of his perfect righteousness. And he awaits them on top of Zion, where access to his gracious throne has been thrown wide open. We are told that in Jesus Christ, by nature of our union with him by faith, we are now to come directly to that throne, the throne of grace. And how does scripture say we're to come? Boldly, with confidence. Our confidence is the Lord Jesus Christ. We approach knowing that His blood ended the necessary spilling of the blood of dumb animals for all of eternity. His sacrifice was but once, and it was eternally effective. Blood no longer flows down, flows down and soils the altar because His perfect blood ended the need for perpetual sacrifice. And because of it, Zion is a vastly different mountain from Sinai indeed. Zion is the city that Abraham so patiently, by the grace of God, waited for. The city which has foundations, whose builder and maker is God. Zion is glorious to behold. It is a place of unfettered joy. Look at the difference here. He says, but you... You come to Zion, the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem, to an innumerable company of angels, to the general assembly and church of the firstborn who are registered in heaven, to God, the judge of all, to the spirits of just men made perfect, to Jesus, the mediator of the new covenant, to the blood of sprinkling that speaks better things than that of Abel. Beloved, do you see the hope in that this morning? You know what's absent at Zion? Fear. Upon Zion, everything is made perfect. Those who have been justified in Jesus Christ, those who have run their own respective races before us, are all there, and they're no longer running the race. They're glorified, joyfully worshiping God at the very foot of His throne. 
It's a celebration that's going on in Zion. The angels are there in a very different role than what we saw of them under the old covenant and under the shadow of Sinai. These are not meeting judgment upon God's enemies. They're not seen in the same light as when they rained fire down on Sodom and Gomorrah. They're not sounding off dire warnings of impending judgment from Zion. They are welcoming. They are worshiping. They are rejoicing. They are celebrating. The English Standard Version translates this part of this verse as innumerable angels and festal gatherings. These are angels that are rejoicing at the coming home of God's children. The angels who filled the night sky above Bethlehem with the ringing out of voices singing praises to God for the birth of the Savior of mankind. This is a picture of unrivaled celebration. This is a joyful scene with men and angels celebrating the the grace of God manifested in Zion. This is a homecoming. You understand? I can't place enough emphasis on that. It's not just a homecoming. You understand? All of our struggle in life ends when we reach this mountain. And it's glorious. This is where we who belong to Jesus come home to the place where we have our citizenship. We are registered in Zion. This is the city of God. Scripture is full of descriptions of our heavenly home upon Zion, the heavenly Jerusalem. Listen to the words of this, the great hymn writer, Robert Edwards, in his hymn, Zion Founded on the Mountains. It's from our own Trinity hymnal. It's, I think, 369 in the Trinity. Trinity. We've, we've, we've been singing it before. Listen to the words. Zion. Founded on the mountains, God thy maker loves thee well. He has chosen thee most precious. He delights in thee to dwell. God's own city, God's own city, God's own city. Who can all thy glory tell? Heathen lands and hostile peoples. Soon shall come the Lord to know. Nations born again in Zion. Shall the Lord's salvation show. God Almighty, God Almighty, God Almighty shall on Zion strength bestow. When the Lord shall count the nations, sons and daughters he shall see, born to endless life in Zion, and their joyful song shall be, Blessed Zion, blessed Zion, blessed Zion, all our fountains are in thee. Beloved, do you see it? Though we remember in our running the race of this life, the divine displeasure of Sinai, we do it under the shadow of Zion, drawing closer and closer and closer with every step we run. Our strength is poured out through Zion's fountains and streams and rivers, the very Spirit of God directing us, bringing us home. As we run towards Zion and our Lord Jesus Christ. Our joy is not eclipsed by Sinai and its terrors. Rather, our fears are blown aside by the cool wind of the gospel 
of Jesus Christ emanating clearly from Zion. Calling the children of God home where they will worship perfectly for all eternity. Just as Sinai produces fear and dread, Zion then removes our fears and replaces it with hope and encouragement as we together run the race of life on the narrow course and the difficult path. Has that not been the very point that this writer has been making again and again and again for the people of God? He's echoing the words of the Apostle Paul in Galatians chapter 4. Read it this week as you meditate upon the word of God. The fear that is evoked by the terrible and magnificent majesty of Almighty God revealed at Sinai is turned into rejoicing upon Zion, where the grace of God is revealed fully in the person and the work of Jesus Christ. And just as the blood of Abel cried out to Almighty God for vengeance against Cain, So the blood of Christ too cries out, pleading for our complete, total forgiveness and covering every single one of our iniquities. This is the way of Zion. It is a place of unencumbered worship where all of us can seek out the ultimate pleasure of being entirely satisfied in Almighty God through the Lord Jesus Christ. Where it is our ultimate pleasure to simply fall down and worship the God who is. And beloved, do you notice the tense here? Because it's important. It's important for us to notice it. Zion is not simply just a future, far off, distant, hazy reality for those who are strong enough to wait for Zion. He does not say to them, hold fast because you will come. No, he says, you have come. Beloved, if you are clinging to Jesus Christ this morning by faith, You have come to the city. You have come to Zion, the city of the highest God. All the glories, all the blessings, all the joys, all the hope of Zion are yours simply by nature of your belonging to the Lord Jesus Christ. We talked about it before. He has taken your anchor safely into the harbor as your forerunner. And you will physically be there one day. And you are there now in Him by faith. It is as certain as Jesus Christ Himself if you belong to Him by faith. But for now, during this process of sanctification, you have all the promises and the blessings of Zion to encourage you along the way. You have the promise of Jesus Christ that He goes to prepare a place for us that we may be where He is. You've witnessed the promises of Zion now, right now, that you may not die at the foot of Sinai. Do you see it? Almighty God has revealed to us the reality of Zion now. This is your reality if by faith you have trusted Jesus Christ as your all-sufficient Savior. 
You have come to the mountain where the threatening flames of judgment burn no more. You've come to a gathering of celebrating angels, sharing in the worship of Almighty God. You've come to the church. The gathering of the firstborn, those who are made righteous in Christ. You've come to Jesus Christ, the mediator of the new covenant. Beloved, you have come to the message of the gospel and all the wonderful, blessed privileges that it enjoins. The law and the quaking, burning Sinai no longer holds any terror for you because you have come to this mount beautiful Mount Zion where your Savior is the one who has redeemed you completely fully with his precious blood brothers and sisters in Christ look around you this morning don't look at me look look around everybody's looking at me look around you you are surrounded by other citizens of Zion. They're all in different places and their sanctification progress, but all of them will be equally glorified, equally welcomed by the glorified in heaven. Think about that for a moment. If all of them belong to God through faith in Jesus Christ, they are already registered citizens of Zion. They, just like you, have been completely and entirely freed from the bondage of their sin, and they're freed for a purpose. To worship Almighty God and to serve Him. Neither you nor them deserve it. Yet God has made it so in His mercy. Who are we to ever speak with disdain? To ever speak hatefully, to put down or to hold on to our petty, silly little grudges with our fellow citizens of Zion? Who are we to ever feel justified in our tiny annoyances with one another based upon our judgments of one another? If not for the grace of Almighty God given to us in Jesus Christ, all of us, would be left shaking in the dust at the foot of Sinai, drenching the ground with our sweat and our tears. But God in his mercy has revealed to us Zion. He reveals to us who its citizens are, and as we are tried in the furnace of affliction, fortunately for every single one of us, we do not get to choose who we go there with. And so... Pursuing peace with all people and holiness is the way of the Christian. It's the way of the citizen of Zion. Beloved, live as one who belongs to glorious Zion. Begin your judgments at home. And I'm confident that you will have enough work to keep yourself busy for a very, very long time. And make your way to Zion for the pure worship of Almighty God, alongside all of those blessed enough to be called His own, regardless of what you or I in our sin might think about them. We go together to Zion, because the truth is, we were born for it. 
Beloved, it was for this very purpose that your freedom was purchased at the costly price of the life of the Son of God. We need to make our way there in order to worship. Never again taking our eyes off the Lord Jesus Christ who purchased us for this very reason. Amen? Let's pray.